HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to HEC Breakthroughs, your monthly podcast by the Knowledge at HEC team. Breakthroughs highlight some of the best of the research coming out of our business school, as well as its impact on society at large. I'm Daniel Brown, the school's head of communications for research. This month, we take a long, hard look at some lessons to learn from the impact the maritime shipping industry is having on our environment what some are calling the dark side of globalization. To do this, we turn to... Guillaume Villemet, Associate Professor of Finance at HEC Paris. The shipping industry moves about 11 billion tons of stuff around the world each year. What are we prepared to do this decade to decarbonize international shipping? Unfortunately, shipping emissions are growing. The IMO should aim to reduce life cycle CO2 equivalent emissions by at least 33% below 2008 levels by 2030, that would align IMO's climate strategy with the Paris Agreement. And how many of us have thought that ships are a much more significant factor in air pollution? Along the main shipping lanes, dense clouds of exhaust gases stretch for hundreds of kilometers. They can even be seen from satellites. How does it happen that the latest cruise ship or a modern container ship causes more harm than the entire fleet of an average country? Just some of the concerns voiced by scientists and academics on the air pollution caused by sea container ships. If this industrial sector were a country, it would be the sixth largest emitting nation on the planet. Later on, you can hear a report on this issue from last month's Change Now Summit in Paris. I visited this event to see how activists there are responding to one of the world's biggest polluting sectors. Pollution is one of the many maritime issues that finance professor Guillaume Villemet has been exploring for years. His books and articles show how the maritime shipping industry has been evading their corporate responsibilities, well, for decades. The environment, yes, but also regulatory evasion, limited liability and working conditions. And Guillaume links this all to globalization. All of this is thoroughly documented and I invite you to look up his work on our webpage. But as Guillaume confides to me, he hadn't really planned to spend these past years researching this sector. It's just that the data associated to it became a goldmine of information on the way our world works. HEC breakthroughs. Well, I'm really working a lot on limited liability and trying to understand how firms face liabilities towards society. And I had for a very long time the idea that limited liability, which is really a key feature of corporate law, could be used by corporations to structure themselves in a way so as to evade responsibilities in case of environmental damages or other kinds of damages. But this thing is very hard to observe empirically. And I thought, well, in the shipping industry, one can really very well observe these kind of things for a specific reason, which is that for most of the corporations in the economy, they have many subsidiaries, but we don't know what they do. In the shipping industry, we know what they do because they own ships and we can observe these ships into some data sets. So I could really explore the whole structure of these shipping firms and observe how they could potentially evade uh, responsibilities by structuring themselves so as to put all of the risk or most of the risk into those small limited liability subsidiaries. 
I'd like to invite the listeners uh, to actually go into your pages uh, in your own website to see that this is just part of several research projects that you have, uh, Guillaume. But we're going to focus on a research that's summarized on a 60-page working paper, which we hope will soon be published, which shows that uh, in 2020, uh, the uh, maritime shipping industry handles around 80% of global trade flows. And your research really shows up the links with what you call the, quote, dark side of globalization. In your own words, can you sum up why this industry's practices are so negative? Yeah, lots of economists talk a lot about the gains from trade and tend to think that, you know, more trade is always better because somehow we benefit more from the gains from trade that you have across countries, across regions of the world. What I show is that, well, for sure, these trades create some value, but it also has some cost. And we tend to think of trade in an abstract way. In a concrete way, you need boats to, to ship, as we said, between 80 and 90 percent of everything we consume, most of what we import, is coming through the seas. And it turns out that a large part of this trade takes place outside of standard regulation. I talk a lot about the issue of flags of convenience. I really measured the boom of flags of convenience over the past 40 years. I really also measured the boom of companies that used to be structured within countries being subject to like domestic regulations and that over the years moved more and more assets to small subsidiaries registered in very lenient countries or jurisdictions. And so what it means is that somehow all of this has lowered the cost of trade much below what it would have been otherwise. And so there is somehow too much trade because shipping companies don't really take into account their environmental cost, their cost in terms of labor safety, labor regulation, technical standards, and so on. And because of this, there is indeed a dark side of regulation. And just to uh, point out that uh, the essence of your research more or less stopped around 2020, pre-COVID. How has it evolved since for you? Well, there has been many topics uh, related to my research, especially during the COVID period. So, of course, maritime trade has gone down a lot for a, for a few months. Uh, but some of the issues I pointed out actually even worsened during COVID. So, for example, one of the main reasons why shipping companies go to flags of convenience is to evade labor regulations and to have almost no or very little labor regulation. Uh, this was actually a major issue during the COVID period because many workers were on ships where COVID broke out. And uh, then no harbors in the world would let them go out. And so some workers really spent many months, sometimes a year, sometimes even more than a year, on a ship without being able to see their family once. And that was somehow possible because the legal status of these ships and of these workers is actually a very gray area. It's easy to overlook just how dependent our lives and the entire global economy have become on shipping and the seas. But a New York Times series shows how little we know about the lawless seas. Migrants, stowaways, and fishermen disappear, often killed in accidents or worse, and tens of thousands of workers are essentially enslaved each year. All the while, international maritime law seems wholly inadequate. And you few focus on ever over 1,700 merchant ships with data that stretches over 20 years up to 2019 on ownership and on the uh, operations history. How did you get that data? 
So I bought this data and I it's basically the data that all port authorities in the world have. So basically when a ship enters a port, wherever it is, the port authorities can connect to a data set to learn about this ship who owns this ship, what is the flag of this ship, is it well maintained or not, where is it coming from, and so on. So really all of the information of essentially all of the merchant fleet worldwide. Of course, before my research, almost all of the people buying this data are the port authorities or the shipping companies themselves. Very few researchers had been using it or knowing that this could exist. It turns out it's a very interesting data set to do, uh, to do studies on, on globalization, on the costs of, 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 of trade and globalization. And you say that this is a good laboratory to explore because uh, these phenomena are more observable. What do you mean? Why? So if you think about other industries, think about pharmaceutical companies, think about oil industries. If you look at Total, for example, so the large French oil company, they have hundreds of subsidiaries if you go to their uh, annual reports. But if you try to know what those hundreds of subsidiaries are doing in all kinds of countries, you will not know. Beyond a name, you will not be able to find any information of what those companies really do, what assets do they have, and so on. The good thing of the shipping industry is that you also have these, these corporate structures with hundreds of subsidiaries, but it turns out that because this, how this data is constructed and how the regulatory requirements are, are, are designed, we know that they hold some ships and that they operate some ships. And so this makes the activity of subsidiaries within corporate groups much more observable than in essentially other industries in the economy. And that's why I think it's a good laboratory. But uh, uh, I would expect that some of the findings I have uh, would carry through uh, in, in other industries, of course. You say that there have been huge changes since the 1980s and you really focus on the past 40 years. Why? What, what explains that 40 years ago there was much more control and uh, much less of the negative phenomenon in the maritime shipping industry that you point out uh, than, than today? So I think that there are several reasons. The main one is that there has been a rise in regulation and in potential liabilities that a judge can impose a company to pay in case of damages in the US, in Europe, in Japan, in all of the major traditional maritime countries. And basically, shipping companies have responded by trying to evade those regulations uh, uh, by moving to uh, uh, flags of convenience, by moving to Panama, to Liberia, to the Marshall Islands, to other companies. And we can really see a clear shift. So in the 60s and 70s, you have really the first major oil spills. Before that, there were not really large oil spills. So in the 60s and 70s, you have major oil spills. So for the first time, this sector starts to be much more heavily regulated. And then there is an attempt to try to evade those regulations. That's one force. And the second force, I think, is competition. It's a very competitive market. And so once some players start to do it, all of the players want to do it just to be able to reduce cost and to keep up with the competitive environment. So I think that these are really the two main factors behind these trends. 
you bring up the fact that there's more regulations, but at the same time, another unique feature of the maritime shipping industry is that it's in the high seas, and that is free from state sovereignty. Uh, this is laws that go back to the 17th century, this idea of freedom of the high seas. How can you explain that, given that there are so many negative consequences to this? Well, I think a very interesting point is that When the high seas were started to be discovered and to be exploited, so in the 16th centuries and then in the 17th century, there were very little issues with, with pollution, with tort liabilities, with this kind of damages. That Could you describe uh, tort liability? I had to look uh, it up. <laughs> or these are damages that you impose to persons which are not part of any contract. Okay? If I lend money to a shipping company and the shipping money is poorly managed, I'm going to lose my money, but somehow I could anticipate it because I'm part of a contract, I lent money to the company. But if I'm a victim of an oil spill, I never knew the, even the existence of this company, and yet this company imposes a damage on me, and that's exactly what we call a tort liability. And so when, when the high seas started to be exploited, Uh, for trade, there was really a major debate, especially at the time between the UK, the Netherlands and Portugal, to try to understand whether those, for example, whether states, uh, monarchies at the time, could appropriate the sea. For example, uh, Britain uh, started to claim that large parts of the sea were British. And then the famous argument is by uh, Hugo Grossius, so a famous jurist in the, in the early 17th century that has this uh, very famous text, Marie Liberum, where he claims the freedom of the high seas, that they do not belong to anyone, and so they are parts of the world which are completely free from state sovereignty. No one, and, and this is a, a principle that entered very quickly international law, and that has been almost constantly reaffirmed uh, since then, uh, including by the United Nations and so on. So no one can claim ownership of the Atlantic Ocean. You can only somehow claim ownership, so to speak, in the so-called territorial waters, so a few miles away from the shores, but that's it. And then beyond that, there is no control. So as long as, as those regions or those parts of the seas were not raising any deep problems, that was fine. But today, they really raise major problems, especially in terms of, of pollution, the environment. So I think that a principle that was really fundamental for, for three centuries, perhaps today needs to be rethought in some new ways. I've worked a lot on the questions of marine time transport, which is central to globalization. Guillaume Villemay had a march hearing in front of the French Senate session on deglobalization. 89% of everything that crosses borders or is exchanged worldwide uses these container ships. I've studied this in the context of my university work at HEC, and I've had access to all the data on all the boats on the planet. What we've seen these past 40 years is an increase in the use of flags of convenience, Almost the entire world fleet is registered under these flags, the three main ones being Liberia, Panama, and the Marshall Islands. And the consequences are very simple. A flag of convenience offers the companies the opportunity to systematically evade taxes, the tax rate in these countries being around 0%. This obviously implies regulatory evasion and abuse of labor law. In terms of environmental law, companies are able to evade legal liability. 
So what that means is that it has lowered transport costs considerably, and that's a big part of the problem because, as a consequence, we have massively relocated. This is only possible because transport costs have been reduced considerably. There have been negative consequences from the point of view of collective and social benefits. However, if we only look at it from a consumer's point of view, we see products being sold at a cut price in euros. Another point that you research is ownership, and that's really key. It used to be groups, but as you said earlier, it's now subsidiaries. 90% of these ships are one-ship companies. How do you explain this legal loophole which allows the companies, the groups, to have subsidiaries and delegate responsibility, no longer be responsible for those ships? So here they are really exploiting, that's really the basis of my argument, they are really exploiting limited liability to its full extent. Okay, the basic idea is simple. Imagine that you own two ships and you have one of these ships that creates an oil spill. You will have to pay some damages to compensate a country or to compensate a population. So what a judge may say is to say, well, but look, you have a second ship. So I'm going to take the second ship or take cash flows generated by this second ship to pay for the damages. But if you own only one ship, the ship is gone. And there is no money left, and there is no, no resources that a judge could seize. And so there has indeed been a trend, a very strong trend, from having 40 years ago most of the ships being owned directly by parent companies, by corporate groups. So they were not really avoiding anything or evading anything. And now, as you said, 90% of the ships globally are owned by single ship companies, single ship subsidiaries. So in case those ships create a damage, it will be extremely hard. It's not completely impossible. Some judge may manage, depending on how it works out. But it will be extremely difficult for a judge to get any other assets from the shipping companies just because these are dif distinct legal entities. You study also the end of life of a ship, and that is what brings into your focus the flags of convenience. To begin with, perhaps you could describe these. So what we call a flag of convenience is essentially the following. Classically, we said that high seas are free from state sovereignty, but there is one requirement, which is that you have to fly a flag. Okay? If you don't fly any flag and you are a ship, you are considered a pirate. And if you don't want to consider a pirate, you have to fly a flag. So you fly the flag of, of France. And it means that it's as if your ship is a small part of the French territory, even if it's sailing in the, in the Pacific Ocean. And so it is subject to French domestic laws, to French fiscal laws, to French labor laws, and so on. Okay. And so traditionally, there was a very well-established principle in international law which was called the genuine link principle. So there had to be some genuine link between the ship and the country that was, that was giving the flag. So for example, if the owner of the ship is French, it would make sense to fly a French flag, and so on and so on. What flags of convenience allow you to do is to do away completely with those links and to say, well, you know, this ship that is French or that is owned by French groups, now... It's actually too costly to, to hire under French labor laws or to pay taxes under French fiscal law and so on. And so why not flag it in Panama? The ship may not go a single time in its whole life in Panama, but, it, but Panama is essentially selling its own flag. So it's really a market for ship nationality and therefore for ship 
regulation and taxes and so on. So all of the countries in the world are put in an extremely competitive framework that drives taxes and regulation down. And, and today, a very large part of, of, of the global fleet is flagged within flags of convenience. Many of those flags of convenience are very small islands in the Caribbean or in the Pacific Ocean and, and, oh, a, few, wow. and a few other, Palau, for example, in the, in the Pacific. And those flags of convenience are not really managed directly by those countries. Uh, think of Palau, which is a popular flag of convenience for end-of-life ships. Uh, the capital of Palau, I think, is about 200 inhabitants. You can imagine that in a capital of 200 people, you don't have any maritime authority with, with lawyers and, and regulators and, and inspectors and so on. Okay. And so what happens is that those flags are actually managed by consulting firms, by law firms that are located in Europe, in the US, in Asia, and that will manage the flag, get part of the fee, and part of the fee will be returned to the country. We have absolutely no indication how exactly this profit is shared. Uh, this is absolutely confidential and I have never read anything convincing, I mean, credible on this. People talk about it, but there is really no way to know exactly how the sharing of the profit works. When did these flags of convenience become a major factor in the shipping industry? Basically, the, the early flags of convenience were born in between the two world wars. And the very first one, and actually the birth of the Panamian flag of convenience, was because it was along the way uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast in the US at a time where the consumption of alcohol was prohibited. And serving alcohol on, on, on US ships was prohibited because US ships were part of the US territory, so to speak. Okay. And so flagging the, those ships in Panama, and they were indeed going through Panama, uh, was a way to, to avoid This, this regulation, okay? And then other regulations started to be evaded, but then the, really the, the real start is really after World War II and really following the first oil spills, and that's really at that time that, that flags of convenience really become major. U.S. Navy motor torpedo boats on patrol in waters off the Panama Canal. Known as PT boats, they're the fastest warships afloat. Guillaume Villemay, your research goes on from this issue of flags of convenience to talk about this phenomenon called beaching. Beaching ships which have reached the end of their lives. There are huge areas of India, Pakistan and Bangladesh especially that are sites for these wrecks to be beached. Could you describe that? Of course. Well, first of all, the One thing to be noticed is that those ships are absolutely enormous. I mean, we don't really see them in our daily lives. Almost all what they consume comes from them. We rarely see them. They are really the size of several football fields. It's absolutely enormous. Yeah, we all remember how the Suez Canal was actually yeah. blocked by just one for uh, several days. Exactly, a couple of weeks, I guess. And so what is beaching? So at the end of this li their lives, of course, those ships, they contain lots of materials, lots of things that could potentially be recycled. Also, lots of things which can be toxic. When we talk about tankers, they are full of residuals of, of oil, of chemicals, of asbestos, and so on. And, 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 and most of them, and essentially all of them, are not properly recycled. So what we call beaching is the idea that those ships would be brought to some beach 
in, for example, Bangladesh, which is the most popular one. And when the, when the tide is high, you would just bring the ship to the beach. And when the tide is low, some people, sometimes even children, would come to collect some of the materials. And when the tide is high again, of course, the water comes in the ship and brings back to the sea all of those residuals, all of those chemicals that are not properly recycled. So that's very bad for the environment. That's, of course, very bad for, for people working in this industry. It's one of the most, and some people claim, the most dangerous job in the world is to work on those ship recycling beaches. You talked about pollution, and in fact, uh, it's interesting to note that at the COP27, uh, the shipping industry, the pollution that it causes in terms of uh, something like uh, 3% of the carbon emissions is discussed and condemned. Uh, the United States and Norway uh, demanded uh, that they become zero emission between now and 2050. And none of the pollution that you are bringing up is actually evoked. How do you explain that this is kind of a forgotten issue? Yeah. It's very hard to explain, uh, but there are some elements. In some respects, this industry really is, because it's extremely competitive and very easy to evade regulation, people fear talking about them somehow. There is always this idea that, for example, if we in France impose more regulations on the ship entering French waters, then immediately the ships are no longer go to, going to go to Le Havre, but are going to go to uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, and, and so on. Uh, which have a more tolerant regulation uh, side? Which could have, in principle. And for example, one thing which is very striking when we think about it is that, of course, we talk a lot about carbon taxing, taxing oil consumption. I mean, if you fill in your car, you pay actually quite a fair share of taxes. The kind of oil that, that those ships uh, use is not taxed. So, so it's actually extremely cheap for those ships to fill in with oil. Why is that? Well, because everyone thinks that, okay, if we impose some tax on, on, on those ships putting in oil, then they're going to fill in with oil somewhere else, and we are no longer going to sell oil to them locally. And so this, the extremely competitive nature of this environment makes regulation very difficult, unless you have really broad cooperation across countries, which is very hard to get. Guillaume, what are the responsibilities that the shipping companies have in terms of this situation? So shipping companies try to improve, of course. I mean, they are under increasing pressure. So there have been increasing regulations, increasing public scrutiny. And uh, even inside, the uh, shareholders are putting pressure. So, so of course, there is, there is also some of that. Of course, as in all these debates about corporate responsibility, it's always a bit hard to distinguish what is really a true improvement from what is really a bit of greenwashing or more speech and so on. One thing which makes it especially difficult in the context of the shipping industry is that from the data I have, for example, I can observe very well the flags of the ships who own these ships, so all of the ownership structures. It's very hard to observe anything else. Uh, the shipping industry is one of the industries in the world which has, for example, the fewer listed firms. And so because those many of the big giants and the largest companies in the world, many of them are not listed, 
in, in stock markets, it means that they don't have to publish annual reports that are made public, for example. And so it's very hard to get any kind of accounting data or official reports for most of the big players. And that, of course, makes the assessment of the, of the commitments, of the discourse, a bit more difficult, of course. To move 11 billion tons of cargo, ships are emitting about a billion tons of carbon dioxide. Container ships, bulk carriers, and oil tankers. Those three ships account for over half of the emissions from the sector. So the container ships are moving um, manufactured goods back and forth. If you look around your office and look at all the stuff you have, quite a bit of it, maybe all of it, was moved at some point on a ship. But the the other portion of the shipping industry that maybe did, doesn't get as much attention is just how much fossil fuels are transported by ships. So we have bulk carriers and oil tankers, and those two are transporting coal and crude oil and petroleum products, diesel fuel, and about 40% of that 11 billion tons of cargo that's moved is uh, fossil fuels. A little over 3 billion tons in the form of oil and oil products, and then a little more than one in coal. So there's actually quite a bit of the shipping industry that is dedicated just to moving fossil fuels from where they're produced and refined to the areas in which they're being used. How aware are governments of this phenomenon and do you see any of them responding positively to try and end uh, this uh, darker side of globalization? So it's very hard. I mean, the position of governments is very hard. I think that some of them do want to, to, to provide answers. At the same time, uh, shipping companies have been very good in terms of very subtle lobbying to appear as really strategic assets. To, to specific countries and to say, well, you know, if there is some supply chain disruption, like uh, we knew with COVID, then, you know, keeping uh, very good relations with shipping companies is actually critical for countries. And so because of that, governments are, are also very willing to keep very good terms with those companies and not to be too harsh with them. So I think they are playing this kind of, of, of subtle equilibrium. For sure, shipping companies are, are somehow benefiting from this because I think they probably face much fewer regulation than many other industries in the economy. Given the importance of this question and its uh, links to globalization in general, how do you explain so little research is being done on this question? It's, it's hard to explain. I think that part of it is that until uh, my paper, at least in economics, people were not really aware that these data sets were available. And, and even myself, there was some randomness in, in the process that led me to, to, to care about shipping. But hopefully it will stimulate other people to also research a bit more on that. How do you respond to the reaction of the media and in general since uh, this research became known a couple of years ago? The medias have been really interested. Actually, I have been really interviewed by medias in France, medias in, in, in other countries. And I think there is lots of interest to know more about how this, this industry works. Especially there has been lots of debates also with COVID, after COVID, Uh, lots of debates, for example, in France, but also in other countries about the so-called giant profits that some companies have been making were also related to, uh, to freight rates and shipping rates and so on. Well, I try to, of course, answer all these requests 
while sticking to what I think can be said scientifically, and many things also cannot really be said just because they are very hard to document. Guillaume, as well as being a researcher, you're a professor here at HEC Paris, and uh, you've actually broached uh, this subject with your students. How have they been responding? Well, I think they respond very positively. I think that the key issue is that people talk a lot about ESG, about corporate social responsibility and so on, but it's often very hard to, to exactly pin down what we mean by corporate responsibilities. It can be something extremely vague, and many people have a very hard time defining exactly what we mean by corporate responsibilities. I think that one value of my approach is that by focusing the issue on, on liabilities and including liabilities to tort creditors, for example, victims of damages, of environmental damages, uh, I can get a more precise view about what responsibilities we mean and, and going from the abstract to the concrete. And so I use these case studies to illustrate this with the students. And I think they enjoy this really concreteness and preciseness of the arguments that can be made about corporate responsibilities. How much more is there to research in this question of the shipping industry and its corporate responsibilities? And what would you like to do? Are you moving on or you'd like to focus more narrowly on some aspects? No, I think that there are many interesting topics going forward. One of them on which I'm working is related more to the regulatory competition between flags of convenience trying to understand, for example, if some flags specialize in catering to some specific needs by uh, shipping companies, catering only to tankers or only to container ships or, or to ships willing to evade this kind of regulation. That's one thing. And then there are many other issues related to other forms of, of pollution that those ships are causing. Perhaps here we would be moving a bit away from, from economics and finance, but these are fascinating questions. What other research, Guillaume, uh, is interesting you at the moment? So several things. One thing is uh, I'm also doing quite a bit of economic history. And the main paper I'm working on at the moment is trying to go to the historical roots of limited liability. And especially in the middle of the 19th century in England, when limited liability was generalized, and trying to understand and bring up some alternative views about the reasons which led to this absolutely, absolutely major change that we now take for granted, but which used not to be taken for granted two centuries ago. Guillaume Villemay, thank you very much. Thank you. HEC Associate Professor in Finance, Guillaume Villemay, whose research on the shipping industry in the context of globalization continues to be hotly debated. Well, not just in academic circles and the media, but as we heard earlier, also in top governmental circles like that Senate hearing in March of this year. Well, to gauge just how self-styled changemakers are responding to some of the concerns Guillaume brought up, I went to a summit here in Paris that calls itself the largest event of solutions for the planet. The Change Now Summit in Paris is an annual gathering which consists of 70 conferences, 400 speakers from around 120 countries over three days and they pride themselves in creating 1,000 concrete actions over the year to tackle the environmental crisis in the world. I've actually come to the ocean and water section to see if any of these actions actually address 
the dark side of the shipping industry. Hi, I'm uh, Rémi Alain. I'm the founder of uh, Vitro Marine. We develop and commercialize floating devices towed by ship, which continuously gather all types of floating waste in order to maximize their recovery. There is still oil spill, voluntary or not, and it's dramatic for animals and for the coastline. And it's a, it's a real threat when it, when it's uh, it's happening. So we have to fight uh, against that. The shipping industry is part of this question. So how can we reduce our consumption of uh, the ships? How can we reduce pollution caused by uh, fishing nets? How can we reduce the noise produced by ships? That all these questions are so important for our future. I'm with Yolanda Iglesias, who is working with uh, Nore Seafood, uh, which is a company that uh, creates, produces uh, Pacific white shrimps in completely controlled environment uh, in Spain. What is your opinion uh, in terms of uh, the shipping industry and how it can evolve? The things like with the, all the globalization now, we need the shipping industry to basically provide for us and meet our goals, for example. How we see it, it is we need to become more local, we need to become more closer to the end consumer to be able to avoid this pollution when it comes to shipping. So the closer you are to where you want to be as a supplier, as a producer, the better. So what you've just seen is a collective of artists and dancers using their body movement to act as resistance as they explore new narratives for climate and biodiversity. So my name is Arun. I'm from this company called Earth Focus. We're based out of India. So yeah, when it comes to shipping industry, I think that's one of the biggest carbon footprint emitters in the in the world. A lot of innovations are taking place in the sense a lot of biofuels are coming in to like you know that's like the biggest uh, carbon footprint emission creator, right? So that's happening. We're talking about an industry uh, that emits a billion tons of carbon dioxide every year. It's one of the biggest polluters, as you mentioned. Yes. Do you feel that there's enough attention being given to this industry, even in change now, where I can't find any specific debate, discussion on this issue? I understand. See, uh, it's, a, it's a huge vessel, right? And innovation, a lot of innovations are taking place, but the only problem is that those innovations are not accessible right now because, you know, it's in its initial stage or the implementation cost would be much high. But I'm pretty sure that there is a bright future in this and this being one of the biggest carbon emitters, I'm sure that there is, I mean, we're not talking a lot about it, but I'm pretty sure that the bigging, bigger shipping companies are working towards it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, eventually we'll be getting solutions that can create differences. Well, I'm Santiago Lefebvre. I'm the founder and CEO of Change Now. When we look at transportation, for example, for shipping, 80% of our products goes through sea transport at some point. They're imported. Yeah. And so you have several uh, solutions to that. Uh, the first one, and we presented that here, uh, there are new you know, wind-powered sea transport. And then there is also another thing which is even more systemic, is that we need maybe to relocalize part of, of the production also. The closer you produce from the point of where you are selling, this is a huge and dramatic change in the, in the impact of your transport. 
So this is also something we, uh, we need to check. Bonjour, my name is Barbara Mounier for Hydraloop and I'm here at Change Now today to talk about grey water recycling and water saving solutions. If you look at the kind of fuels that the shipping industry is still working with where you see that even on land there are better solutions now I would say that the shipping industry is like 10 or 20 years behind on that. Of course I would also say that the shipping industry more than other industries is really dominated by very large corporations who do not see an immediate need for change. A few of the participants from the 6th Annual Change Now Summit that ended on May 27th. You can hear more about this event on our HEC Newsroom website. Well, that's it for this month. To get insights into HEC's other research, why not subscribe to our monthly newsletter? There you can enjoy news analysis from our faculty members who explore the impact their research is having on social, economic and societal issues that touch us all. Oh, and if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to drop them off at brownd at hec.fr. That's brownd in one word at hec.fr. Till next time, goodbye. <laughs>